You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We thank God that we can tell Jesus, no matter what our burden is, no matter what we face and what we struggle with, that we can go before the throne and we have a high priest that makes intercession for us. And what a joy and comfort that is to know that we have such a wonderful, wonderful Savior. First Samuel chapter 8 this morning, we're going to cover a lot of ground in the Scripture today. And so stay with me, we're going to cover chapter 8 and, and much of chapter 9. I guess since we were at chapter 7 for three months, we should probably make some headway now. But a very important portion of Scripture when it comes to the monarchy of Israel, this transition that takes place, from being led by God and God alone now to going to a monarchy looking for a man to lead them. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning at verse number 1. And it came to pass when Samuel was old. Ian just joked about being old because of his age. At this time, Samuel is probably in his 50s. That's not old, sister. And for me, it gets younger every year, right? Um, but this, this is the truth. He's probably in his 50s now. Uh, and, and he's considered to be an old man. Isn't it all relative, isn't it? Right? When you're 50, it's not old. It's the prime of life, right? But he's, he's a, he appears to be an old man. And he's, he's failing a little bit in this time and juncture in his life. And he made his sons judges over Israel. It talks about his boys. Verse 3 tells us that they did not walk like their father. They were not spiritual men. They actually took bribes and they perverted judgment. Those who were supposed to be leading the nation spiritually were unfit to do that. And the people rebelled against that. It's not what they wanted. And so they said to Samuel, you're an old man now. You've made your sons judges. We don't want that. And what's interesting to note in this whole story is they have already seen as a nation the best of men, Eli, their high priest, and now Samuel, produce sons that were worse than them, terribly worse than them. And here's what they want now. They want new leadership based on this hereditary principle that a father leads and then his son takes over. And there's nothing you can do about it. So you, you see... How ironic it is that they say to Samuel, we don't want you and your sons. We want a system where we have somebody else. We already know it can go bad, but that their sons will just rule and reign one after the other. So they want a man. They want a king. They want to disregard God. And we, we find in verse number 7 of this text, Samuel's not happy about this. Of course, he takes it personally. You would. I would. But verse 7 is interesting. The Lord says to him, Samuel, hearken, listen unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should reign over them. He goes on to say in verse number 9, after giving example after example of how they've rejected God, now therefore, again, hearken unto their voice, listen to them, Howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them 
and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And it's interesting, God says to Samuel, listen to them, hear them, they, they want a king, but, but when they ask you of that, make sure that you protest. Make sure that you run through all the problems with their requests. And so from verses 10 to 18, Samuel lays it out and says, listen, you want a king, but I want you to know something. This king, and you'll notice six times, the king will take. This man that you want, in your rejection of God, you want a man to rule over you, this king will take. He will take your land. He will take your stuff. He will take your tithe. He will take your children. He will take everything. And and unbeknownst to them and to us often, when we reject God and we don't want Him to rule over us, the only other option then is slavery. And there will come a day that they will cry out against this king. Listen to me. All kings take but one. Jesus said in John chapter 8, My kingdom is not of this world. I'm a different kind of king. Ian this morning taught the Sunday school filling in for Dan. Again, we'll be back at his post next week, continuing on the tough questions for believers. But this morning he talked about the burden to the cross, the burden at the cross, the burden from the cross. He did a fantastic job reminding us that King Jesus didn't take, he gave. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And I want you to know something. Our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only King that loved his subjects who rebelled against him, who were rebels, who were at enmity with God, who loved them enough not just to come and to take position lower than his glory, but to live among us, to walk in our steps, and then to die for our sin. This is the only king that gives. And he didn't just give a little. He gave it all. He gave it all. And this morning as believers, as we sit and we watch this story, because human nature is the same, we have this tendency to rebel against our king, and and we fail to realize he is good, and he is gracious, and he gave it all for us. And we, we should thus judge that if, if one gave his life for us and all were dead, then we should live for him. And we should give, out of love, everything back to him. And so this is King Jesus. And we see that comparison throughout Scripture. He is unlike no other. And so we must worship our king and understand what we have. And it that, and that helps us to understand this morning as well that if you reject this king who gave his life for you, There is no other hope. There is nothing left for you. It is not your church, your good works, your baptism, who your family is. None of those things matter. If you're trusting anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, you have lost all hope because he is the only hope. And for us to say anything other than, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting in you and you alone, is to add something or to say that at the cross it was not enough. It's a slap in the face of God. 
If you don't accept his love, you will accept his judgment. And so this morning, just for those of us who know him, love him, serve him. And for those who don't, listen to me. He will never again be spit upon and mocked and crucified. He is coming again. And he is not coming to be our savior to die on a cross. He is coming to be our sovereign king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they reject God as their king, like we often do in our own lives. Samuel says, bad idea. And now look at verse number 19 of our text in chapter 8. God said to Samuel, you listen to them, verse number 19, after Samuel lays it all out. And listen, what Samuel says about the king is all bad. What he's telling them in essence is, you're making a bad deal here. What you want is not good no matter what you think. And so he comes to the end of this passionate plea to, to talk sense into them. And here's what they say in verse number 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. We want a king over us. Now remember this this morning. When Samuel is speaking to the people, it's not that Samuel is just giving them his opinion. It is not that this is his pet peeve. It is not that this is his hobby horse and it's just what he thinks. When Samuel is speaking as the prophet of God, he is speaking as the mouthpiece of God. And so when the people hear what God says to them, and in turn they say, hey, thanks but no thanks, they are rejecting God. They're rejecting him. They think they've got all the answers. They think they know it's interesting, Proverbs 12:15 says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. And we've got to be careful this morning. We become very resistant to any opinion that goes against us when it comes to the Word of God. And we act as if we know better. And we, we act as if it doesn't apply to us. And somehow, some way, we're different than that. My friend, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. We must be preserved this morning from the arrogance of our own stupidity. Stupidity. Samuel gives them the truth. He gives them knowledge. He gives them insight. And they reject it. And it's a great reminder this morning for all of us. You can hear truth. I can hear truth. We can be educated and instructed. But the, the fact is, that in itself does not transform us. Education may clarify. It cannot transform. And for many of us, we hear the Word of God over and over again. We know it. You could win a Bible trivia contest this morning. But that's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not what you know. It's who you are. They, they, just, they just got truth. They were warned. Samuel said, this is what God says will happen. He knew what he was talking about. He said, listen, that's okay. We know better. We're going to go our way. We want our own thing. It's dangerous. Dangerous. It's not enough to sit here and learn and read and study and have the right answers. That's not maturity. Uh, several months ago, now it's not probably about, a, uh, maybe, maybe several months ago now. No, maybe a month ago. I don't want to exaggerate. 
about a month ago. Um, in my family, there's only two of us that like tomatoes, right? It's David and I. We love tomatoes. I mean, we love them. I'm not talking about the tomatoes that you get from the store that are orange in color. Or what. I'm talking about real tomatoes. You know what I'm talking about? Vine-ripened tomatoes. We love them. They're so good. I, I could eat them just like an apple, just to eat a tomato. Put a little salt on it, maybe a tomato sandwich with a little mayonnaise on there. and Mmm, doesn't that sound delicious? How many folks are with me on a tomato sandwich? Yeah. Oh, this is a good place. All right, good. Good. Love it. Love it, love it. And for those of you who don't love tomatoes, you don't know what you're missing, all right? Just, they're just wonderful. So Shirley Maynard um, bought David um, a tomato plant. Because she's just trying to be kind. It's like, this is great. And not only a tomato plant, but it was this hybrid tomato plant that's supposed, I don't know what they mixed together, but it was supposed to be like this monster of a tree and these huge like, tomatoes on there. And so we're all excited. And uh, so we put the tree on the, on the porch there, and we, we watered it. And, and, and after about like a week, the thing went crazy. I mean, it grew to be, it was like this. It was like, you know, so I had to cut it like Jack and the Beanstalk. I mean, it, just, it was unbelievable. And it grew, and there were leaves everywhere. And it was wonderful. And, and it just kept on growing. And after about three weeks, I realized the thing kept on growing, but there's no tomatoes on it. There are no blossoms, there's nothing. And someone said, hey, Rick, um, they didn't say stupid, they wanted to say, hey, stupid, you're supposed to cut those things back because all of the nutrients is going to the leaves, so it's not bearing any fruit. So when they told me that, you know what, I hacked that thing to pieces, man. <laughs> I, I cut off everything except the main thing, and it, looked, it just looked like withered, and, and I cut it back within a week. I have now 11 blossoms on that on a tomato plant. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Right? It's awesome. Sure. <laughs> you're thinking, this guy's nuts. What's wrong with this guy? There's a point to this. The point is this. That tomato plant was very leafy. But there's no fruit. And too many of us listen to me. You hear the word of God and you are leafy. Oh, you got all the right answers. And you got your opinion on what everything means, but there ain't no fruit, right? It's by the Word of God and the Spirit of God and submitting to Him that we see God do a deeper work in our lives that totally transforms us. Don't tell me about all your Bible trivia answers. Tell me about your love. Tell me about your joy. Tell me about your peace, your long-suffering, your gentleness, your goodness, your faith your meekness, your temperance. They were fools. They were fools. Look at verse number 22. And this is interesting to me. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto them. This is a bad idea. They're making a bad decision. They're pushing for this to happen. It's not my perfect will. And God says to Samuel, listen to them and make them a king. This is instructive for us. God gives them what they want. They got their own way. And they'll pay for it. Years ago, 
Um, I, I thought it was Gregory. It wasn't. I talked to AJ the other day, and it was, it was AJ. AJ was probably about three years old, and we were living in Michigan. And um, he was a big apple juice kind of fan back then. You wouldn't touch it now, but back then apple juice was, it was the bomb. It was what he liked. And about three years old, he was in the kitchen, and, and in our refrigerator, on the bottom shelf of the refrigerator, every time the door opened, there was a bottle of vinegar cider. Right? You know vinegar cider. It looks like apple juice. It's not. And every time that door would open, AJ would say to his mom, you know, I want that. I want that. He would grab for it and touch it and pull it out of the shelf. And she kept on telling him, no, that's not what you think it is. It's not apple juice. That's not for you. And this went on for a long, long time. He would pout and fuss and cry because he wanted to have the apple juice. And so I was home one day, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a real fan of learning by consequences. It's powerful. Some of you parents should try it. So he was crying about the apple juice, and I said to Kim, pour him a cup. And she put it in a sippy cup. And he was excited. Oh, he couldn't wait. And he took that cup, brought it to his lips, and started to chug. And within seconds, he realized it wasn't wasn't apple juice. It was apple vinegar cider. And he spit and he cried and, Pisces, 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 which was spicy, right? And it burned and he got exactly what he wanted. And can I tell you, after that point, he never asked for that stuff again. (laughs) Never, never, never again. We've got to be careful. Listen to what God says about his people in Psalm 106, verse 15. He's talking about them wanting um, meat in the, in the wilderness, how they're crying and griping and complaining. Here's what he says. The psalmist says, And he gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their souls. Listen to what he says about this portion of Scripture in Hosea 13, 11. I gave thee a king in my anger. In my anger. I want you to know something. Granting of this request was not a blessing. It was judgment. They pushed and they wanted and they had to have. And God said, if you're not going to listen, you can have what you want. Christian friend, we better be careful. When you push for that relationship that you want, that God has already said it's a bad idea, you might get what you want. When you push for the stuff that you know God says there's something better than this, and you keep at it over and over again, out of his anger he might say, okay, man, you're a blockhead. You're a rockhead. You need to learn some other way then, so I'm going to give you what you want. And this is what he does for the children of Israel. And, and, and the chapter ends, after God says to Samuel, give them what they want, the chapter ends by, by simply Samuel saying to every man in Israel, go ye every man into a city. And you have the sense that Samuel's like, fine, just get out of here. We'll figure this thing out. And chapter 9 is unusual. And, and chapter 9 starts out, and there's this guy from Benjamin. And if you know anything about the tribe of Benjamin... It's a terrible tribe. 
They're wicked. As a matter of fact, toward the end of the book of Judges, because of their, their vileness and because of their arrogance and because of the fact that they didn't listen to anybody, their tribe is almost completely wiped out. Almost completely wiped out as a tribe in Israel. And so God says, give him a king, and Samuel sends him home. And then chapter 9 says, hey, there's this guy named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's just a bad start. It's just a bad start. If you know this, it's not good. And so he gives the the background of Kish, and he's the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. He's a mighty man of power. And the idea there is he's a man of substance. When, When the Bible gives you a list of names after a man... What the, what the writer is telling us is, yeah, he's influential. He is somebody. And so Kish is somebody. Verse number 2 of chapter 9. And he had a son whose name was Saul. And just so that you know, Saul here in the Hebrew literally means asked for. Hmm. Asked for. That's his name. Saul, a choice man and goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. Um, I'm telling you something. When you looked at Saul, man, he looked good. He looked really good. If there was a Mr. Israel, 1050 B.C., he would have won it, hands down. Girls would have swooned over him. And it goes on, it describes him, and it says he, he was this great person, and then it says um, from his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. He was tall, dark, and handsome. Be careful about that, that taller. It wasn't like he's playing basketball. The average height of a man during this time was 5'5". Five five. So he could have been Tom Cruise's height. I, I don't know, but he was, he was, he was head and shoulders... About people there, he was tall. He may have been six foot, maybe. But in his, in his village, in his town, he was a big deal. This is Saul. And, and I have to be careful. There are, there are good qualities about Saul. We're going to see in a minute um, this day in the life of Saul, which is, again, unusual for this chapter. But he listened to his father. He honored his dad. He was concerned about his dad's concern for him. Um, Saul was inspiring. We'll see later on. He gathers a number of men around him. He was skillful in battle. There there are a lot of good things about Saul. But there's some real problems with him. And we're going to see part of that today in our text. So, uh, chapter 9 gives us the the introduction of who Saul is. And then it's this typical day in the life of Saul. And what happens is this. Saul is with his dad and they lose some donkeys. They, They take off. And we might not think of that as a big deal, but, but in our day and age, it would be like losing for a farmer losing his pickup truck. You'd be concerned about that. Because all farmers have pickup trucks, right? You have to have a pickup truck or something like that. Walt, you have a pickup truck? Herbie, you have a pickup truck? Yeah, right. I'm, I'm right. Okay. See? I just, it's true. I have two examples. It's true. All right? And so he loses these donkeys and he sends his kids to go find the donkeys. And uh, so they search all over the place. Jump down to verse number 6. Saul goes out. His dad told him to go out. Take a servant with you. One of the slaves here. Go find the donkeys. Verse number 6. 
And he said unto him, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God. Now, now I want you to know who's talking here. It's not Saul. It's his servant. Saul doesn't bring up God. Saul doesn't bring up the servant of God. Saul doesn't bring up asking God for help. It's the servant, the slave, who says, There's a man of God. And he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have there at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. And then verses 9 through 10 tell us that during this time they called prophets seers. It's the same idea, they just had a different name. And then verse 10, Then said Saul to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, He is, behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city, for there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as ye be come into the city, ye shall straightway find him. Before he go, uh, before he go up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice. And afterwards they eat that be bidden. Now therefore, get you up, for about this time ye shall find him. And they went up into the city, and when they were come to the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Jump down to verse number 18. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And so you get the picture here. This is just a normal day in Saul's life. His dad lost some donkeys. Go find them. They can't find them. They're going to go back. The servant says, let's go ask the prophet, the seer. Saul says, well, that's a good idea. And as they're going, they come across these girls. The girls say to them, listen, you're just in time. Coincidentally, the high priest, the, the priest Samuel, is here in town. You'll meet him as soon as you go in the city. And so they go into the city, and as soon as they get there, Saul says to Samuel, who is the prophet, hey, can you tell me where the prophet's at? Which would make you think what? He doesn't know him. Now, now that may not mean anything to you, that here Saul is, he doesn't know Samuel the prophet, but let me remind you of something. Samuel is the greatest prophet since Moses. 300 years. Not only that, Samuel is a judge now over Israel. He makes a circuit to three cities all year long. And one of the cities that he goes to is Ramah, which is five miles from Saul's home. Isn't that strange? That here is Saul, and he's asking Samuel the prophet where Samuel the prophet could be found. He does not know him. I'm convinced as we look at Saul's life this morning, as we see his life played out in the chapters to come, that Saul was a good guy, but he had no time for God. This, this was not important to him. Not important 
at all. He doesn't take the things of the Lord seriously. And I got to tell you something. Isn't human nature? So how, many, how many people? And I'm talking. I'm not talking about the world now. I'm talking about our churches. How many men and women? We just don't take things of God seriously. We live our lives, we go to work, we, we go home, we have our families. And the truth is, we know very little about God. We don't take it seriously. And, and can I just say something about the men, for the men here this morning? Because this is Saul, the man, doesn't know much about the Lord, or his prophets, or ministry. Men, you ought to know something about the God you say saved you. It ought be important to you. your kids, your wife, the relationships you have. They, they shouldn't know that, yeah, he's a good guy, and I think he goes to church. They should know that here's a man who really loves Christ, and it means something to him. And just a sidebar for the ladies who aren't married yet, don't be marrying a guy who has no concern for the things of Christ. Because I don't care what he looks like, I don't care how cool he is, I don't care if he's the bad boy that you've pursued, I'm telling you something. When you marry that man, if he has no regard for Christ, it will affect your future and the future of your children. And the best thing you can do this morning, ladies, is this, who aren't married. Find a man who loves Christ. Because when you do, he will love you the right way. If you already found one, you pray for that boy. And if you are that boy, you better start loving Christ. You better start now. No excuses. And, and so Samuel's like, Saul says to Samuel, hey, can you tell me where Samuel's house is? <laughs> yeah, I can show you. Like, I'm him. Right? And so we, we, we go through the story, and if we work our way through, he then talks to Samuel, and Samuel says, listen, they found the donkeys. No big deal. I want you to eat with me. Tomorrow, and then he, he goes on to tell him some things, and, and, he, and he says, these are some three signs that are going to happen. But I want you to know something. If you were following along this morning, and I hope that you were, I went from chapter 9, verse 14, to chapter 9, verse 18, and I skipped three verses. And the truth is, as I read those verses, it was seamless. Saul says, let's go. The next verse says, they found Samuel. But I want you to see something in verse number 15. That, that we are given the privilege of knowing a little secret that nobody else knows. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul... The Lord said unto him, Behold, the man whom I spake to thee of, this same shall reign over my people. It, it's interesting. We have the privilege of being let in on this little secret, and here's a secret. What seemed to be a typical day in the life of Saul, lost the donkeys, can't find them, ran out of bread, here's the servant, the, the maidens tell us we'll run into him. All of these things are being orchestrated by the God of heaven. The entire event, what seemed to be just a normal day in the life of Saul, was orchestrated by God. Proverbs 69 says, A man's heart deviseth or plans his ways, but the Lord directeth his steps. 
And this is our Lord's providence. He provides the needs of his people, directing all of these things. This is how he runs our world. He is sovereign even over the mundane things of our lives. This chain of ordinary events was God thrusting a man along on a path which he knew not. And here Saul thought he just lost some donkeys. But God was orchestrating this event to give him a kingdom. And I want to tell you something this morning. This is how our God works. We could have read that chapter and we would have figured it out, but the truth is we're letting that secret that the whole thing is done by God. He providentially cares for his people. Even in the mundane things of life that we don't understand, our God is at work. It's not just a day in the life of. God is behind the scenes. He's orchestrating events for his glory and our good. And there are times, like in this text, we see it. We clearly see it. You can sit here this morning and you can think of a time when when things were happening in your life and you knew that God had orchestrated this meeting and that event and that stop sign and that friendship and that payment. When I was just a kid, I was 19 years old, I I was serving in in Germany in the military. We were guarding the east-west German border and... um, and, and there was a, uh, an exercise that we were away for a couple weeks. And uh, at the end of this exercise, they're going to have this, this chance for additional training. And it was training in ordinances. Now, it's not the Lord's Supper and baptism. When I say ordinances like that, I mean explosives. And at 19 years old, man, I love to see things blow up. Wouldn't you? Yeah, some of you women are like, what are you talking about? Men are like, yeah, I'll blow stuff up. That would be cool, right? And so I wanted to stay. 19 years old. And so I asked my, my, my sergeant if I could stay. He said, sure, you can stay. He said, but if you're going to stay, I had a military license I just got uh, for a Bradley fighting vehicle. I was a driver. He said, if you stay, you have to have the CO sign this license, which is no big deal. So, okay, I'm going to find him. And I've got to tell you, for a day and a half, I could not find my CO. I missed him by steps. I missed him by minutes. He was in a Jeep. I couldn't find my commanding officer. He never signed my license. And so I went back to my sergeant and said, listen, I want to stay. He said, I could stay. I couldn't find the CO to sign my license. Can I stay? He said, no, you can't. You've got to leave. And I was really devastated because I want to see stuff blow up. Like any red-blooded man. And I left there disappointed Unbeknownst to me, at that training exercise, an ordinance went off and three men lost their lives. And I would have been there had it not been for one signature of a man I could not find. Can I tell you something? Your life unfolds like that every day. And sometimes God pulls back the curtain and we see it. And other times we never get verses 15 to 17. But I'm here to tell you something. Whether you get involved in the secret of verses 15 to 17, it doesn't matter because this is our God and this is how he works. And it just shouts to his glory. The God we serve is involved in even the mundane things of our life that we don't even understand. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that. That's our God. And then quickly this morning, let me give you one more thought and then we'll, we'll stop with this. I want you to see God's providence in our life. It's so powerful here in the text. But there's something else here in in this portion of this secret, verses 15 through 17. I want you to notice God's language toward his people. He says, 
in the middle of verse 16, Be the captain over my people, Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. Okay, remind me this morning, these people that he's talking about, what did they just want in chapter 8, do you remember? They want a king. And God says, this people, my people, they rejected me. But I want you to know something. I'm still their king. I'm still their God. And even in their stupidity, I will show them compassion. I will save them from the hand of the Philistine. Our God is never indifferent to the sorrows and sufferings of his people. Never. Even if we create it ourselves. And for some of us this morning, listen to me, as a pastor, I preach and I teach because I want to keep you from doing that stupid thing that you ought not do. Okay? That's my heart's desire. It really is. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making light of the fact that when we blow because we all blow it. But I want you to understand this. When we do blow it, and even when we put ourselves in this situation that's our own doing, and we're struggling and we're suffering, we still have a God who says, you know what, yeah, that one, he's mine. Yeah, she's mine. And I still love them. And my heart grieves for them. And I'm still, because of who I am, going to show them compassion. Let me read a couple things to you quickly as we close. Um, Isaiah 55, we read this a couple weeks ago. Verse 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And now watch what he says and, and, and sometimes I think we, we pull this out of context. In light of what he just says, here's what he says in verse number 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Can I tell you what my thoughts are when I blow it against God? My thoughts are, you know what? I really blew it this time. Ah, he's got to be so sick and tired of hearing this from me again. Maybe I've gone too far this time. I mean, I, I I, I feel like I can't even ask him to help me because I know I put myself in this position. You know what God says? Hey, stupid, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. I don't think like that. Why? Because I am compassionate and loving and kind in spite of your stupidity. And we should thank God for it this morning. We should thank God for it. Our sin does not dry up the fountain of his compassion. Because if it did, it'd be dried up a long, long time ago. I'm not talking about, talking about me this morning. Let me just close with Psalm 103, and, and this is the best way to close this. The words of the Lord. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. 
He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.